Good morning, brothers. Good morning, everyone online this morning or later uh, as you may be watching. It's, uh, again, a joy to be with you all this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 26 and in the first few verses of chapter 27, if you want to be opening your Bibles to that particular passage. And I just realized, uh, could someone hand me my jacket right there from my chair? I think I left, yeah, I think I left my glasses in there and I'm not going to be able to see my Bible if I don't. Let's see. How about this pocket? There we go. Thank you, Billy. Yeah. Um, as Hunter mentioned, we're going to be looking kind of at the, the example here we find of Judas Iscariot. And we're going to do some comparisons between Judas and some of the other disciples. But most of what we want to see is how, how Jesus and how the gospel all come to bear on this. So Judas um, was a pretty common name back in this time period. Uh, I, I was a little surprised to, to see that there are actually six different men named Judas um, here in the Bible, in the New Testament. Jesus had a brother named Judas, uh, Matthew 13, 55. In the list of disciples that we have the of the 12, one was Judas Iscariot, but one was Judas the, the, the son of James. Uh, and sometimes Judas the son of James in other gospels is called Jude or, Th Jude or Thaddeus, Judas Thaddeus. So Jude can be a shortened form of Judas. There's some other relatively obscure Judases that we find in Acts 5.37, 9.11, and 15.22. So we, so we see just that in general Judas was a, a pretty popular name at the time, and it was really a variant of the Old Testament named Judah. And we, we have the whole region of Judah. We have Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And Judah itself means praised, or let him be praised. So we, we, we find a number of Judahs today, uh, parents naming their, their ch child or son uh, Judah. We find a number of Judes, but, you know, I'm 50, 62 years old now, and, and all of my years growing up at school and all of my uh, experience, I don't believe I've ever known a Judas. Uh, has, have any of you ever known a Judas? Okay. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a reason for that. I think that, that that name Judas has become synonymous with someone who betrays somebody else, just kind of like Benedict Arnold was uh, in our own historical culture of being a traitor. And you've probably heard someone call somebody, you're a, he's a Judas for having betrayed uh, someone. So the, the verses just before Matthew 26, 14, where we're going to begin uh, some of our passage today, they tell the story of a woman who extravagantly poured this expensive ointment out on Jesus' feet. We'll recall that where she uh, washed his feet with her tears and then put this expensive ointment on Jesus that would have cost an awful lot of money. And when we, we read about that, it was immediately after that event that Judas then went to the high priest. 
and he turned Jesus over. He said, basically, I will, I'm willing to betray Jesus over to you. And that's when they gave Judas these 30 pieces of silver. So but before we read about this Judas Iscariot, I'd like to just piece a couple of more details about him from the other Gospels here. In, in John chapter 12, verse 6, we, we find that Judas was complaining about the ointment being so costly. And he said, we could have helped so many poor people if we'd have had this, uh, the money from this. But John's gospel gives us this insight. John says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having cha charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John is putting Judas's character here in a, a light here that is not very favorable. And then... In chapter 13, verse 2, this is the foot washing kind of a passage here. And John says, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So, so we see that there's a satanic involvement here in Judas, that the devil had put it into his heart to betray Jesus. And then Luke 22, 3 goes even further. And this is what Luke writes. He said, he said this, oh, that was not right. Um, I copied the wrong bag, wrong verse there. Anyway, what Jesus, uh, Luke said about Judas is that the devil had entered into him. That's, that's what Luke 22, 3 says, that the devil had actually entered into Judas. So I'll try to correct that for if I ever give this message again, but look up Judas, uh, Luke 22, 3, and I think, does anybody have Luke 22, 3 there? Yeah. Um, any case, all this happens in the context of the final Passover meal that Jesus is going to be sharing with his disciples. And we remember that the Passover meal is this traditional festival that was begun back in the book of Exodus when God said, I'm going to come tonight with the angel of death and it's going to hit the firstborn of all of, of Egypt including the house of Pharaoh. And unless you have the blood of a Passover lamb over your doorposts and your lentils, the angel of death will come to you as well. But if you have this blood there in almost the form of a cross over the door, then you will be passed over by this. And he said, this is a perpetual feast that you are to do every year at this time that you're to celebrate the Passover, remembering how I have delivered you out of slavery from Egypt. So this was the Passover time that all of this is occurring. Now, with that background, let's, let's read these passages here. We're going to read Matthew 24 through six, 14 to 16, 20 to 25, 31 to 35, 46 to 56. And then we're just, we're just picking the verses up pretty much about Judas um, at this point. Beginning... In verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now we skip on down to verse 20. When evening came, he, Jesus was reclining at table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I assure you, one of you will betray me. 
And deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said it. Then we move down to um, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all of the disciples said the same thing. Move on over to chapter 27, verses 3 to 5. Oh, let's, let's hit 47, I'm sorry. Do we not have that on there? 46 to 56, yeah. <clears throat> Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived in a large mob with swords and clubs with him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. He says, the one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, what have you, why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. And at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Let's go on to 27, 3 to 5. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was full of remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, what's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So Judas threw the silver into the sanctuary and departed. Then he went out and hanged himself. Now, what, what lessons can we learn from these verses here about Judas and about Peter and about Jesus' interaction with him. That, that's really where we want to spend our time this morning to see what lessons we can draw out of that. And, and I believe here we, we are given uh, the, a good foundational passage to develop sort of a, a gospel-centered theology of betrayal. I, I, I believe we really need to have such a gospel-centered theology of betrayal to really know how to navigate our lives as disciples of, of Jesus. Um, I want to point out some words that are repeated throughout the chapters that, that I believe will be of help to us to understand better what's going on here. Um, there's three different kinds of betrayal, three parallels of betrayal, maybe three levels of betrayal that we see here in, in these verses we've been reading. The first word is actually betray or betrayer or betrayed. And that same root of betray in our passage, this word, this word always in Matthew here refers to Judas. That's the only word that he uses for Judas is this word betrayed. 
And it has this idea of one who hands over, one who, who turns in, one who delivers somebody over to like an enemy or even to like to, to the police. If you were turning somebody in, you, were, you would be delivering them over. And then there's another word that Jesus uses. And, and this word always referred to Peter and the other 10 disciples. And, and, and this word is really to, to fall away. Uh, that's the word. But all of you, he says, will fall away. And that's the word that means to stop believing or to fall into sin. We find it in 2631 and 2633. And then there's this other word that is used. And this time it's used only of Peter in our passage. And, and that's the word that means to deny, to repudiate, or to disown. And we see all three of those levels of betrayal going on here. We see Jesus, Judas actually betraying Jesus by turning him over to the chief priests and over to the guards so that he could be arrested and then later crucified. We see all 12 of the disciples, or all 10 of the, or 11 of the other remaining ones, not Judas, but the other guys, all running away. And we see Peter actually denying that he knows Jesus on three separate occasions. So, um, in between Judas's deal with the priest, where he goes and he says, what will you give me for him? And they say 30 pieces of silver. And then the time that he does this kiss in the garden to actually betray Jesus, to have him arrested, we, we find Jesus now uh, instituting this Passover meal or celebrating the Passover meal with the 12 in verses 26 to 29. And it was at that meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And hopefully we'll come back and make a little connection between the Lord's Supper and this a little later on in our message, if I can remember to do it. But um, John's, John's Gospel gives us a little bit more detail about this gathering. And he tells us that on that occasion, Jesus took off his outer garment, and he took a towel, and he went around and he washed all the disciples' feet. We find that, that passage in John chapter 13. And as he washed those disciples' feet, like a household servant would have done, he also washed the feet of Judas, the one he knew who was going to betray him. And then after that, after he washed their feet, he, he sat down and he, he shared this meal with them. So I said earlier, we need this gospel-centered theology of, of betrayal, because as, as disciples... How do we view betrayal in the light of Jesus? How do we view betrayal in the light of the gospel? I, I think it's an it's exceptionally relevant question for each of us, a very practical lifestyle question for us. So the, the big idea this morning is that the gospel of Jesus speaks hope and challenge, both things, hope and challenge to both the betrayed and the betrayer. And... One of us, we're going to find ourselves in both of those roles, guys. We're, we're going to sometimes be the betrayed, and sometimes we're going to be the betrayer. So let's, let's first, we'll first look at what do we do when we've been betrayed, or when we have betrayed God and other people, when we are the betrayers. And then we'll consider how to display the gospel love of Jesus to those who have maybe betrayed us, because the, the gospel speaks to both of those problems. We, we just noted that uh, the word that Matthew used for Judas's betrayal is different from the word he used to describe the 12 guys who fell away or fled. 
And, and then he uses still a different word for Peter denying, of, of repudiating. That he said, I, I don't even know this guy, disowning Jesus, basically. Different words for all of those. But to deliver Jesus to the people who were intent on crucifying, this seems in, to, to me, in, in, I can't think of a worse thing to do. Uh, to be that treacherous, to turn over Jesus to the people who were going to kill him. And yet Matthew and Jesus tell us that, that there is something also that is just about as bad. Matthew 10, 31 to 33, this is Jesus speaking just a little earlier in the gospel. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So just the fact that I imagine Judas's thing to be so treacherous, God doesn't wait sins according to my imagination. God, God says, you know, you're both going to end up in the same place. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus, Peter's sin of denying Jesus wasn't all that different from Judas's sin of betraying him and turning him over. And then the other 11 who ran away and fled, they had very little right to criticize Judas or Peter because they also were betraying Jesus in a different way. And Jesus had used the quote from, from back in Zechariah 13, 7, when he was speaking, he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Throughout these passages, Jesus is constantly returning back to show how everything that was happening was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So this was a prophecy even back in Zechariah. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now guys, if, if we could, if you guys are comfortable, raise, raise your hand if you've ever been betrayed by somebody that you trusted. Okay. See, I, I think it's pretty universal. Raise, raise your hand if you have ever betrayed somebody who trusted you. Yeah, okay. This, this, is, this is real life stuff for us. And for those of you who may be watching online, every man here, if I'm not mistaken, we all ended up raising our hands as having been betrayed and also as having been a betrayer. So my guess is th that beyond that kind of betrayal, most of us have also effectively denied knowing Jesus by either our words that weren't congruent with our profession of faith or by our silence when we just chose not to speak up uh, to declare our faith because we didn't find it to be a safe environment to do that. And I'd also just imagine, if you're anything like me, that I'd wager that most of us have fled from following Jesus to a place that we feared might be dangerous or might even be deadly. And we just said, I think I'm going to skip this assignment. I don't think this is one that I'm ready for right now. And, and so to be human in a fallen world is to be both betrayed and the betrayer. Now, in, in some ways, we could view the whole Bible as this chronicle, this record uh, of human betrayals, and yet God's faithfulness in the midst of those betrayals. Just, just think back, where, where do we begin? We, we, again, we have Satan, this beautiful, powerful angel in heaven 
who betrays the authority of the Father and tries to incite a rebellion in heaven and is then cast out of heaven. Then we see him deceiving in the form of a serpent the first human beings that, that God had created. And unfortunately, we see those human beings then believing a lie and betraying God by seeking to become rulers of their own lives rather than servants of him. And it's, it's not long after that that we see the sons of this first couple, Adam and Eve, and we see Cain betraying his brother Abel by murdering him. Later on, we see Jacob and his mother betraying the brother Esau and the father Isaac by pretending to be uh, someone they weren't and something they weren't, stealing the blessing, if you would. We, we see Pharaoh betraying the Israelite Hebrew people by saying, you guys are free to go out now, just go and leave. And then shortly after, he brings all the chariots and the armies and tries to pin them against the sea. We see the King Saul betraying King David, God's anointed one. You see, we, we see all of these betrayals, betrayals of people betraying God, betrayals of people betraying one another, and it seems like betrayal is actually at the root of every sin that you and I ever have to face. It, it is a denying of the authority of God. It's a denial of really knowing him. It's, a, it's turning over uh, ourselves to the enemy. So all of these betrayals in the Bible, all the betrayals that you and I have suffered, and all, all the times that you and I have betrayed other people and victimized them by our, our betrayals and treachery, all of those times are part of a bigger story. And it's the story that we find today in its culmination. It's the story of God not betraying us as we are want to betray him. All sin is betrayal. And it's just kind of very interesting to me that Jesus used the betrayal of himself to save us from betrayal. Uh, that was just the, the poetic justice of how God chose to, to do this, that, that Jesus knew he was being betrayed. We're, we're going to look at that a little bit more closely. You see, in, in Matthew 26 and 27, we, we had those three types of betrayal that were going on there. The disciples had abandoned or fled Jesus. Peter had denied knowing Jesus. But Judas had actively delivered Jesus into the hands of those who planned to kill him. And what was the, the distinction, though, between what Judas did and, and, and what Peter did and what the other disciples did? Uh, and, and we see that, that Judas absolutely anguished over what he had done. After he realized that his, his actions had led to the crucifixion of Jesus, he, he had this tremendous sadness and, and, and remorse. He confessed his wrongdoing. He took the 30 pieces of silver and he threw it back into the temple to the priest. And he said, I have sinned by confessing innocent blood. So he actually confessed his sin in, in verse 4 of chapter 27. But right after he confessed his sin, he went out and he hung himself. Matthew, again, remarks, though, that, that Judas's actions were a direct fulfillment of prophecy. And he goes back to quote a verse from Jeremiah and Zechariah, kind of a combination of the two, and about the potter's field that was bought there, showing again, this was not out of God's control. This was always in God's foresight. God knew that this was going to happen. In fact, it was part of the bigger story that God was writing. So one distinction 
that we see between Judas and the other disciples is that his sorrow actually led him to such despair that he took his own life. And one of the things I think is important to see as we go back into that garden scene there, there was a distancing going on between Jesus and Judas. Uh, when Judas came and betrayed Jesus with a kiss, Jesus said, friend, depends on the version, you're saying, what are you doing? Or another version will say, do what, uh, do what you came to do, do what you do quickly. And, but when Jesus calls him friend, that's not the same kind of idea as, you know, I no longer call you my slaves, but I call you friends. And we find in John chapter, you know, uh, 14, I think there. Um, but th this word friend in Matthew's gospel is always used by a righteous man talking to a wicked person. Okay. Uh, you look in Matthew chapter 20, verse 13. You look in Matthew 22, verse 12. In the context of that, and Jesus is saying friend, and he's saying friend, but it's always in someone who is an unrighteous person. So it's kind of a formal language, but it's a distance language. And then you see when Judas comes to Jesus there in the garden, he, he calls him rabbi, just teacher. He, he's not calling him master. He's not calling him Lord. There, there's this breach that's already occurred there. He's now just, you're, you're, you're the teacher. And so as we see this distinction between Judas and the other disciples, his sorrow led him to take his life. And we see a different word that Matthew uses here from the word we normally find for repentance. The word we normally find for repentance is a stronger word, but Matthew uses a softer word here that, that literally just means to change your mind or to feel regret. And in and, and this whole discussion of betrayals, whether we're the ones being betrayed or whether we're the ones doing the betraying, this idea of repentance on our, our part has to come from to be more than remorse because Judas had remorse and regret, but he did not have repentance. I'm going to read a quote or put a quote online here for you on the screen from Craig Bloomberg that I like. Um, if I can get it here. Judas does acknowledge his sin and Jesus' innocence. When he goes to the priest and he says, you know, I, I have sinned, I have, I have uh, shed innocent blood. But he does not demonstrate the mark of genuine repentance, which is appropriate corrective action. You see, the, the, the real word for repentance is a change of mind, yes, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. There's a corrective action that always takes place in what we call the fruit of repentance. So remorse is often a first step. And then the fruit of that remorse leads us to repentance, which has a corrective action involved. But sometimes we get stuck at step one with remorse and regret. We never get to step two of repentance. We never get to that corrective action. And so he had the appropriate, he, he had, uh, he did not demonstrate the mark of genuine repentance, appropriate corrective action. He confesses to the wrong group of people, to the priests, and he should have been confessing to Jesus. And then he simply gives up on his life. Now, guys, I don't know where each of you may be today, and those of you who are online, um, I, I know that some of us have had real guilt and remorse for past betrayals that we have committed against other people and sins that we've committed. Perhaps we've been unfaithful in relationships, either uh, literally or uh, figuratively. Uh, but we, we can kind of give up to think that, is, is God really able to forgive me? Does, does God really want to have a relationship with, with me?
And if we allow ourselves to admit and think about this idea of betraying other people, it becomes a burden that is, is really, really heavy to bear. The Apostle Paul understood this burden. The Apostle Paul had been this great persecutor of Christians. The Apostle Paul had been a guy who had been involved and accomplice to the shedding of the innocent blood of the first martyr in the church, Stephen, we find in, in Acts chapter 7. And he went in search of believers with letters to bring them back to prison and to have them beaten and to have them punished just because they were followers of Jesus. So that, that was the Apostle Paul's background before his conversion. But it allowed him to be able to write 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 where he, he's talking about this man who has had this great sin and then comes back in terms of repentance. Excuse me, and Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Guys, you know, I, I, I've still done things years back that I probably have regrets for. I mean, I, and regret in the terms of I, things of, I, I wish I hadn't done that. I, I, I caused harm to other people. I caused pain to myself. I caused dishonor to my God. But when the gospel comes in and frees us with, with this grief that leads us to salvation, this godly soul that takes us back to Jesus, you know, the, the, the weight of that regret is, is certainly dissipated. I don't have to carry that around in the pain of that any longer because Jesus has been betrayed to take the betrayals that I have inflicted on others upon himself that I might be set free from that. So when, when Paul had confronted, had been confronted with his own sin by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he not only grieved what he had done in the sonning of Stephen and the other persecution of the church, but he took corrective action. He had a genuine repentance here that led to a change not only of his mind and his thinking about who Jesus was, but it led to his repentance of changing his whole lifestyle. So in, in contrast to Judas and his grief and his regret, but no repentance, no corrective action, let's consider Peter and the other 10 disciples. What was different about them? Well, each one of them had betrayed Jesus in their own way, either by denying him, by fleeing, by running away. But they all took corrective action. They all acknowledged what they had done by falling away, and they went back to follow the resurrected Jesus they, they, they owned their stuff and they went back and they continued to follow him. They followed him from that point on with a, a fearlessness that was ferocious. So a gospel-centered theology of betrayal also, though, speaks to those of us who have been betrayed by others. I think we, we, we dealt a little bit what happens when we, we betray. How about when we've been betrayed by others? Guys, we need, we need the gospel to help us to get over the trauma and the injury of this, this breach of trust of somebody having betrayed us. And if we don't get over that, that injury, we're at risk of becoming very bitter men. We're, we're at risk of becoming vengeful and, and wanting to inflict pain on the person that inflicted such pain on us. 
And, and the gospel has a solution for us that we find in, in Jesus. Um, how did Jesus deal with the betrayals? One of the very first things that just seems to pop off the page to me is that Jesus was not blindsided by Judas's betrayal. Jesus knew that it was coming. He knew it ahead of time. He said, one of you is going to betray me. The one who puts his hand in the bowl here and dips with me, that's, that's the one who's going to do it. And yet Jesus had just washed Judas's feet knowing all that was going to happen. Jesus had just sit down to have the Passover meal with Judas and the other 11, uh, other 11 disciples. And one of the things that's very interesting about the Passover meal, if you look back in Exodus, this is just kind of an aside, but it's a, it's a rabbit trail. I'll chase a second. You know, the Passover meal was to be celebrated in households with your family. And, and you know, these guys still had family, but they celebrated this together as Jesus and the 12 because they had become a family. You see, this the family of Christ in the scriptures takes even a priority over the biological family that we have here. So Jesus was taking Judas into his family here. He washed his feet. He had this family meal celebrating the Passover, all the while Jesus knowing that he was about to become slain, sacrificed as the Passover lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So... A, a gospel-centered theology is going to help those of us who have been betrayed as, as well. Um, not only did Jesus know what was going on, but Jesus tells us outrightly here that he could have stopped it. Look what he writes out here, what he says. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. See, he, he knew that the only way to save betrayers was to be betrayed by the betrayers. And he, he willingly took that upon himself. Two verses later in, in, in verse 56, Jesus repeats, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus said, I was born for this. I, I knew when I left my father's glory in heaven, to take on human flesh and come down here, that this is why I was coming, to be betrayed, to save the betrayers. Now, Jesus' choice was always to live in agreement with the words that he had spoken through the scriptures. And as God incarnate, Jesus had been a part of inspiring those scriptures that were written in the Old Testament prophets. And when he came to live, he came to live in agreement with the words of God that he himself had spoken. So the gospel of Jesus demonstrates this kind of love that is able to wash the feet of people who will flee from you, wash the feet of people who will deny they even know you when the going gets tough, to wash the feet of one who will even turn you over to be killed. And beyond washing their feet, then, it means that, that he was willing to sit down at a table with them and to celebrate this family meal, which was the most holy of, of the holiday festivities and meals. And so, guys, how does the gospel speak to us? Well, to me, it says that until we can serve and sit down and be willing to dine with our betrayers, we have not fully comprehended the great depth of Jesus' love for us. And, and, and we've not yet learned to love others 
as Jesus loved us, which was one of his final commands, love one another as I have loved you. You see, Jesus, he could love that way because he knew that his reason for coming was to be redeem betrayers from, that had been there from every generation, from Adam and Eve all the way up through ours today. And he also knew that God would resurrect him to a new life and would restore him to his pre previous place of glory and honor after he had died. He, he, he knew that his sacrifice would not be the end, but it would be the beginning of freedom for, for countless others. So a gospel-centered theology of betrayal calls you and me to put Jesus' redemption on display by loving those people who have betrayed us just like Jesus loved us. We find this just such a theme throughout the scriptures in the New Testament of Jesus' teaching. Forgive your debtors as I have forgiven you. Okay. Um, we can do that, and we can only do that because we trust God to resurrect us to a new life and that one day God is going to make all things right and we don't have to take vengeance and we don't have to carry the trauma of this pain around from people who have betrayed us because God is going to be doing his thing to make it all right. So again, the big idea is this. Let's see if I can get back there. The, the gospel of Jesus speaks hope of, of forgiveness, of the opportunity to repent, and it speaks a challenge to us that we do need to repent. We need to have a corrective action going on with our remorse and our regrets for people that we have betrayed. And when we've been betrayed by them, there's this hope that God can actually use us to show the gospel to other people. And that's one of the reasons Jesus called us to follow him is to put that gospel on display, to love others like he's loved us. But there's the challenge though, to say, am I willing to sit down with that person and to love them like Jesus has loved me? So the gospel asks, have, have you gone beyond regret and remorse to corrective action of repentance with those that you betrayed? And see, Jesus is continuing love and relationship with Peter and his relationship with the other disciples to tell us that Jesus forgives those who return to him and who follow him. The gospel also asks us, are you willing to wash the feet of those who betray you. And the only way that can happen is if you believe the gospel that in spite of our sins and our betrayals, Jesus really does love us and he really does want a relationship with us. If, if you have been hurt by betrayals of others, Jesus understands and he wants to heal those hurts. And if you betrayed others, he still loves you and calls you to repent and be redeemed. So I... Got a couple of questions here for us right now, and then I'm going to leave one question on the screen at the end. This one's kind of a private reflection as you go throughout the day. In your betrayal of God and others, is there corrective action you need to take to move beyond regret to repentance? That's for your, we'll put that at the end. But for, for our groups right now, what is your natural response to those who have betrayed you? And how has the gospel spoken hope and challenge to you about betrayals either committed against you or ones that you have committed? Father, please take your word today and plant it deeply in our souls and hearts and minds. And, and Lord Jesus, thank you that you are willing to be betrayed. And uh, may, may we learn from this and find application for our relationships in our daily living that would put the gospel on display and be pleasing and honoring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.